A young perspective on hot button issues around the world. This is the Hub. Ten relations between China and the United States stopped the downward spiral. Will the two great powers avoid the so-called new Cold War? Our guest today was a diplomat on President Jimmy Carter's team, working to establish diplomatic relations between China and the United States. The organization he leads now helped organize the ping pong diplomacy, which paved the way for U.S.-China rapprochement. Now he advises senior leaders on both sides for a constructive bilateral relationship. But can he succeed? Here's my interview with Steve Orlands, the president of the National Committee for U.S.-China relations. Steve, so good to welcome you back to China. Let me begin with your earlier years. At 26, right, you were one of the youngest diplomat on President Jimmy Carter's team, working to help establish diplomatic relations between our two countries.、Um, what was it like? In retrospect, it was amazing. At the time, I didn't really understand. The importance of what we were doing. I always joke that I was the Xiao Tu Do in the U.S. State Department. I was in the legal advisor's office, and because of my background, I was put on the team that was going to help establish diplomatic relations with the United States. And you know, when you're 26 or 27, you don't understand the implications of what your work is for the world. So we did it. We accomplished it. I remember when Deng Xiaoping came to the United States in late January of of、uh, 1979. We established diplomatic relations on January 1, 1979, and we all went to the White House lawn to welcome him. And I remember being so moved by the playing of the national anthems of the United States and China. You know, just standing. It was a cold, sunny day, and just standing on the lawn, seeing Deng, seeing Carter, was even though I was young and didn't understand what this meant, it was a remarkable experience, a deeply moving experience. And what I didn't realize on that date is we had put in process a peaceful relationship with China for the next forty. Three forty-four years. You wrote about President Jimmy Carter saying that what Carter has taught President Day leaders is that domestic opposition should not prevent the president from acting in the long-term interests of the United States. Today, President Joe Biden can show leadership in a way that improves the political, economic, and social progress in each country without sacrificing legitimate national security concerns and strategic interests.、Um, why do you think Carter, a Democratic,、uh, did it? Then and Joe Biden, a fellow Democrat in a way, hasn't done it now. There is domestic opposition in the United States to improving relations with China, and there's domestic opposition in China for improving relations with the United States. So what I was talking about was the great leadership to kind of overrule the domestic opposition and improve relations, you know, establish diplomatic relations with. China. It's incumbent on both of our leaders to look far to the future, look at what's truly in the interests of the American people and the Chinese people, and to overrule that opposition and take steps to improve the relationship between the United States and China. Because your generation and your children's generation need that relationship to be productive in order to have. Better lives than my generation and than your generation. Yes, Steve. You once talked about the importance of either side sending positive feedback signals to the other side, 
so that there can be a virtuous cycle instead of having this current downward spiral. Um, where can the two sides start and why, like you said, having a constructive relationship is in the best interests of the future generations of people on both sides? So what the two governments need to do today is get back to what I call the Bali Accords and start down a positive track instead of what you correctly referred to is this negative cycle. One side accusing the other of something, the other side just accusing the other back. But what if you think about, like you said, domestic opposition? Uh, I lived in the United States for eight years. I would say it was a very uh, different town uh, nowadays than when I first uh, went there in 2011, when people were talking about G2. When you think about the military-industrial complex, the, the Republicans in the, in the Congress, where Joe Biden might need to do horse trading with, and also the never-ending political cycles over there, just how big the opposition, the pressure was for Joe Biden. Take a simple example of the tariffs. Who really benefits from what was the tariffs that were put in by the previous administration and then China retaliated by putting in tariffs of their own? It reduces American exports to China. It hurts China's exports to the United States. Most importantly, the biggest losers are lower income Americans. That, so it, we estimate that these tariffs cost the average American family around $1,000, $1,000. If you're wealthy and you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you don't even notice these tariffs. But if you're a lower income American and you're making $25,000 or $20,000 a year and you are paying this $1,000 in tariffs, you have to find somewhere to save the money. So do you not buy your children shoes or pants or shirts or school books? That, if both sides agreed to end the tariffs, the people on both sides would immediately see benefits. This wouldn't be like a Fed interest rate increase where it takes time. We would immediately see this money go back into the pocket of consumers. We would immediately see all Americans benefit. So it's something that's what I thought is low-hanging fruit. Of course there's a tiny percentage of America that does benefit, who benefit from protectionism, but it's a tiny percentage. So I urge both governments to act to do that. Closing of the consulates. So the previous administration closed the, the Chinese consulate in Houston. Punishing Americans in the southwestern United States. So punishing people in Texas, in Arkansas, in these areas. Closing of the consulate in Chengdu. Just reopen them. The people will instantaneously benefit. So it's, it's some of those issues which I think the overwhelming majority of both Americans and Chinese benefit from are things which both governments can do. And what I hope that does, it then creates what you referred to, is the virtuous cycle. So instead of this cycle down, this downward spiral, we create a cycle up and there are other things that both governments can do. So my hope is very soon, under the Bali Agreement, we start to have Secretary Yellen, Secretary Raimondo come to China and have very specific discussions about things that we can do together to improve the lives of ordinary Americans and ordinary Chinese.
if you think about climate change, uh, which is giving us a big lesson, and also uh, pandemic, public health issues, if there were to be a lack of cooperation, we already see the fact that there has been a lack of cooperation, and we saw uh, the consequences, very negative consequences. Yes, it's true. It, it kind of breaks my heart, you know, in a lot of ways. So look back to Ebola. So when Ebola broke out, what I saw were Chinese and American scientists working on cures, working for ways to make sure that epidemic didn't become a worldwide pandemic. And we had that cooperation. We had it. It worked. Ebola was, was confined. It was success. If you look at the outbreak of COVID, it wasn't a success. We didn't have the cooperation that we needed in healthcare. And that's not the result that any of us want. So we need to reestablish that cooperation on healthcare. When I think about climate change, again, one of the great moments in, for me, the last 18 years was when, that I've been president of the National Committee, was when President Xi and President Obama met and they together uh, drove the signing of the Paris Accords. It was such a moment that to me represented the future. This was America and China leading the world in a positive way, in a productive way, dealing with the most existential threat that both of our societies have. And we need to get back on that path, that failure to deal with climate change together. We may not be able to deal with it together, but I can guarantee you one thing, is separately we will fail. That China and the United States need to together confront climate change and come up with ways to deal with what is, for, again, for my grandchildren, for my children even, is an existential threat. Has the relationship got so bad that we don't want to work together to preserve this world for my grandchildren and your children? I say it hasn't. And the leaders need to show leadership and find ways to cooperate on climate change. Steve, how concerned are you about the prospects of this continued clash, of course, between China and the United States uh, in what many uh, in Washington say a new Cold War. Uh, they draw parallels between China and the U.S. to that of the former Soviet Union and the United States, saying that, look, when there is a near peer to the United States, that there is a inevitable rivalry, clash of great powers between the two. If you look at the past paradigms of the rise of great powers versus the existing ones, Every single day I get up in the morning and I say, what can I do to increase understanding? What can I do to increase contact? What can I do to make sure this does not generate into anything that looked like a U.S.-Soviet Union relationship in the Cold War? It is avoidable. What has happened is used to be very narrow. It's now broadened to include so much. Nobody recognizes what the cost of that is. Of course we should each defend our national security. I don't question that China or the United States should defend its national security. But what constitutes national security and what are the consequences of it for innovation, for inflation, for all these other things? So when we have these restrictions, so if China has to invent the same stuff as America does, 
think about the waste. Think about the waste. If it's military equipment, okay, I understand it. But the broadening of these definitions has become really uh, destructive in terms of innovation, creation, inflation, supply chain resiliency. All of these things, which the truth be told, are good. They're not bad. Uh, if there is a cure for cancer, so let's say I get cancer, do you think my kids care if it was the cure was invented by a Chinese or American or a European scientist? They couldn't care less. So the idea that we, either government, should be restricting this joint research is ridiculous. We punishing our people. We can't punish the people. It's not right. It's not fair. There are certain beneficiaries of that, but that is a small minority. Steve, talking about people-to-people -people exchange, I studied in the United States. You studied in China. We all know the importance of people-to-people -people contact. Look at the other in the eye and get a sense of what the other side is really thinking. Unfortunately, the other day you told me the number of American students currently studying in China, which was like what? Less than 400. Less than 400. That's miserable. That's sad. It's terrible. And it's very, that, that to me, when, when I worry about the long term, I worry about that a lot. But when you're dealing with 400, wow, where are the next Steve Orleans? You know, what's the next generation, you know, the third generation after me? Are we going to have people who have lived in China, who've under, who understand China, who speak Chinese? I'm a strong believer in it's very important that you speak Chinese in order to understand China. You can understand it as somebody who doesn't speak Chinese, but it gives you a much deeper understanding, an understanding of the culture, history, traditions. And it allows you, of course, to communicate with people in Chinese. So your communications are significantly enhanced by that uh, ability. Now, plenty of Chinese speak English. Uh, some of the meetings I have with leadership are in English, which is very impressive. I wonder if there are any meetings that when the Chinese go to the United States, when you know, people in my similar position meet with leaders of the United States, are there any that are conducted mm. in Chinese? My answer is I doubt it. Um, I don't think that there's anybody in the senior levels. Of You're the one of the very few Americans. Uh, you used to joke yourself that regularly watch Xinwen Nianbo. I do other watch Xinwen. Every morning I watch Xinwen Nianbo. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's directly delivered to my home. Tell us a bit about the story with your late brother and how a bond between Americans and Chinese through commerce changed <laughs> his perception about what you do. That's a long story, but the, the, um, if you wanted to find someone who's the opposite of me, you would find my brother. You know, that he, in all of my years here, and we were very close, we shared a room for 18 years, and then he went to college and then joined the U.S. military, then ended up in Ohio, and basically lived his whole life, and went to Ohio State Law School, lived his whole life in Ohio, and in Dayton. And I watched this city of Dayton, be hollowed out. It was a traditional manufacturing center in the center of the United States. And this company closed, you know, National Cash Register closed, General Motors closed, the facility which built cars was abandoned. 
And I watch through his eyes. Now, again, he was in Ohio. All the years I spent here, which is half of my adult life, he never came here once. And he never quite understood, you know, my initial work here was helping U.S. companies invest. And he never quite understood that. But then years later, Chinese companies started going to the United States to invest. And lo and behold, one of the largest Chinese investments was made three miles from my brother's house. Mm. So I went to the opening. It mm. was it was Fuyao Boli and Cao Duang is, is the chairman. And he invited me to speak at the opening. And it was an amazing experience because Governor Kasich was there, Senator Brown was there, Congressman Turner was there. The whole political establishment of Ohio was there. And I watched Dayton be reborn. It was reborn because of this investment. So stores and dry cleaners and schools suddenly had 2,500 American families got paychecks. Families got paychecks yeah. because of Cao Duang's investment, because of Fuyao Boli's investment. So it was this rebirth and as I sp of Dayton. So as I spoke and I saw my brother's community reborn, I said, ah, and he's, he's left us. So I said, ah, he probably is looking down from heaven. He says, oh, I finally w understand what you do. Very touching, very touching. Um, despite all the disruptions, China-U.S. trade continued to grow, like it or not, believe it or not, in the past uh, few years. If you look at the trade data, uh, if yeah. you look at uh, investment, of course, was uh, not ideal, but if you look at trade, that's still growing. Uh, what do you make of that? When you have developed sources, it is not, you know, people say, well, just change sources. Well, it's not so easy. You need qualified suppliers, you need an infrastructure, and you need a lot of things. So all this talk of trade decoupling, there has been limited trade decoupling, where if you use China as a supply chain, you've moved to Vietnam, or you've moved to Cambodia, or you've moved to Sri Lanka, or somewhere else. That has occurred, but it's, it's quite limited in how it has occurred. The other is a lot of the trade and investment is in China for China. That's not going to leave. You're not going to sit there and put a facility in Vietnam to sell to China. Maybe you'll have a facility in China that will help you sell to Vietnam. So that has continued. It's much more difficult to change a supply chain than political people think. Yeah, oh, we just tell, tell them you got to change it. Well, it's not, um, it's not so easy. Tariffs have created some supply chain disruption, but the theory of tariffs was flawed. The idea when our president announced it was it would bring manufacturing back to the United States. It didn't. There's no evidence that manufacturing came back to the United States. But there is some evidence that it did go to Southeast Asian countries. It did go to Mexico. So what it was, it didn't return trade to the United States. It was a diversion of trade. Uh, also, people haven't realized it's inflationary. So the cost of the goods manufactured in Vietnam because of the infrastructure and other problems in getting going in Mexico is higher than it was in China. So that's actually added slightly to inflation. So it's not, it's policies that are that are bad and have not really been effective 
So as I said earlier, mm. it would be great to have both sides and the tariffs. It would be good for trade. It would be good for U.S.-China relations. It would be good for inflation. It would be good for lower-income Americans. We should do it. And when I go back, I will make another plea to the U.S. government to do that. Talking about China's development, you're a witness, you're a participant. Recently, China's growth or China's political model, China's development model has been summarized as this Chinese path to modernization. Looking at it from the outside, what's your understanding of that? You know, because I've been here 44 years, hard to believe, 44 years. I, I remember, you know, as I, I came over Chang'anjie to get here, and I remember the first time I went, I was on Chang'anjie, which was October, the night of October 19th, uh, 1979, wow. and it was about one o'clock in the morning. I was going from the old old airport to uh, the Beijing Fandian, and uh, there was no other car. Hmm. The only car there were bicycles, there were ox carts on the on the ox uh, on the wow. airport road. The airport road was just a two lane road going back and forth from the airport to uh, you know Third Ring Sanhuan. So now I just came over Chang'anjie. It was absolutely stuck in traffic. You know, the cars weren't moving in any direction. The idea that in my lifetime that change has occurred is simply remarkable. It's simply remarkable. You know, it's when I go places that didn't have electricity and running water and now they have high rises, it's simply remarkable. And unlike most people, I've seen it. I have, didn't read it in books. I didn't see it on television. I lived it. I lived it. Going to places, you know, where children didn't have shoes because they were too poor. So that path to modernization has been extraordinary. And there's actually, as I'm here, there's not a day that goes by that at some moment I don't, something doesn't jump into my mind mm. and say, oh, I remember in 1979, flashbacks, flashbacks to, to that experience because I'll go past the place. Wow. I mean, today really? I was at, um, you know, in a new modern building between Sanhuan and Suhuan. It used to be fields. I told the owner mm. of the building, this was, this was, you know, just fields. He had this no idea. Green. <laughs> yeah, he knew, he knew. He, yeah. He's not so young either, but, but it, it's extraordinary. What has happened in my 44 years here is the private sector in China has been the engine of growth. And it's really important that that remain the engine of growth because that's what's created this amazing modernization of China. And even meeting with the leadership these days, my feeling is China is sticking to that policy and increasing the emphasis on the private sector and increasing the emphasis on foreign firms coming here to, to invest. What's your take about China's you know, global security and development initiatives or overall its role in the world today? What I hope to see is actually more things like what China just accomplished with respect to Iran and Saudi Arabia. Those two countries reestablishing diplomatic relations is good. I'm a strong advocate of having China play a more active role in mediating an end to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Obviously, sovereignty and territorial integrity are fundamental principles 
of China's foreign policy. And one would expect a, any mediation effort by China to have that as a fundamental principle. But my belief is it would. So I, I'm, I'm all for China increasing its role in finding a peaceful solution. The organization that you lead now actually helped the American ping pong table tennis team to travel to China, an episode which was later known as ping pong diplomacy. Looking back, what were some of the interesting episodes? Um, what lessons can be learned by today's politicians and policy makers? Ping pong diplomacy, I mean, it's, it's, the lesson is overwhelmingly important for today. So think about it. So Nixon and Kissinger were, nego were talking about going to China. And Mao and Zhou Enlai, all four of them realized that if you just had the political breakthrough and you didn't have the people-to-people -people foundation, it wouldn't work. So they came up with this brilliant idea when the U.S. ping pong team was in Japan that it should come to China and start this people-to-people -people diplomacy. And then we got involved and we hosted the Chinese ping pong team when it came to the United States. And it was a media frenzy. When that team flew around, there was a whole nother plane oh. for US media. Mm -hmm. And what it did is it laid the foundation for the political breakthrough that Nixon, Kissinger, Mao, and Zhou Enlai could do this because they laid this foundation. And ultimately, they helped lay the foundation for more people-to-people -people exchange and then the Carter-Dung breakthrough. What we need is hundreds of ping-pong teams to rebuild that people-to-people -people relationship because ultimately, and this is something people lose sight of, many politicians will listen to what the people think. And when the people-to-people -people exchanges really get going, it will shift the attitudes of people on both sides of the Pacific. So we need to get them going. We need to get flights. We need to get nonstop flights. We need to have lots of them. We need to have lots of Americans come to China. We need to have lots of Chinese come to America. We all need to work together. And that will slowly change the narrative. It will slowly change the outlook. It won't be tomorrow, but it will come. One thing that's remarkable is the passion with which Steve Orleans talk about the necessity for China and the United States to build this cooperative partnership. It's fair to say that it is also the desire of many for relations between Washington and Beijing to stop this downward spiral sooner rather than later.